Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be covering the second part of episode 223, Live Together, Die Alone. In some circles, such as Netflix or uh, on your DVD version, this may be also known as episode 224. Either way, we're talking about Live Together, Die Alone, part two. This is the second part of the 47th overall episode, and there are 74 to go. Uh, Before we jump right into the episode, uh, a couple of quick plugs. I'll mention the Alcatraz podcast that uh, me and a few friends from phgeek.com are doing uh, as we we look at uh, this new show, which hopefully is a successor to at least some of the the vibe of Lost. Uh, Certainly it has some of the same... Behind-the-scenes talent and some of the uh, in-front-of-the-camera talent uh, has made the crossover, so please do join us uh, at alcatraz.podbean.com or by searching for the Alcatraz Podcast by phgeek.com on iTunes. Uh, Similarly, if you're looking to get into the world of podcasting yourself and want to do so about Alcatraz, uh, you could uh, head over to alcatrazpodcastnetwork.com and uh, join the party there as well. Uh, also, a quick reminder that uh, Looking Back at Lost will be moving to Fridays uh, once I start Season 3 of the uh, of the show. Uh, next week's episode is going to be kind of a Season 2 review, Season 3 preview, kind of an opportunity to step back for a bit and look at... Um, Look at uh, you know the, this kind of uh, end of end of the one season, beginning of the next, uh, in a larger sense, and then um, immediately after that, the the, the first Friday in February, uh, the show will be well available on Fridays. So anyhow, with that, let's now get into some feedback for this podcast. Tina on Twitter had uh, sent me a message uh, about this uh, about this episode. Uh, she says. Jack should have uh, popped a cap into Michael's leg for betraying the group. Uh, and also said, Locke destroyed a perfectly good hatch with food and water. How come they never went back for those notebooks? Uh, and I think she's referring to the uh, the Pearl Station notebooks, which uh, Jack and company found uh, right before getting uh, attacked by the others with the electric uh, darts, as we'll be talking about in this episode. Um, uh, certainly a good question. I mean, well, I, I mean... I don't know what huge value the notebooks would have had. Certainly, if the choice is for a whole bunch of plastic tubes to, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, rot out. I mean, I guess they wouldn't rot because they're plastic, but just to hang out in the middle of the jungle versus uh, uh, our castaways having it. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose that's a better use. But um, certainly a good question. Probably just a little, uh, you know, I guess. <laughs> The writers couldn't think of a good use to have, you know, a thousand plastic tubes uh, just hanging out at camp. Uh, I also received a fantastic uh, email from Nick, which I'll uh, read uh, part of right now. He said, salutations, Matt. I'm currently on a 17-hour flight, so I've been able to catch up on your great podcasts. Uh, During these podcasts, you touch on some show themes that are near and dear to me. Uh, Nick goes on to say that uh, in lockdown... 
uh, references made to uh, the rain uh, that's uh, that's well happening in the island on the island. Uh, and Nick says, after watching the incident, my son told me that the rain was the elemental Jacob trying to protect or grace the losties, just uh, the opposite of the elemental man in black. Uh, every time a losty was uh, at a pivotal time in his or, her own, his or her own life, it was usually pouring rain. Whenever the smoke monster was chasing a person, the pouring rain would slowly follow Smokey. And Nick concludes that thought by saying, leave it to a nine-year-old to figure that one out. Uh, I, I really like that. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't really noticed the connection before. I guess I had looked at rain as more of a, um, you know, a dramatic tool to, to heighten things, to darken the scene, um, to, to make things feel more tense. But, yeah, I, I like the theory. I really do. I think that there's, you know, it's one of those things you really can't prove or disprove one way or the other. But I really like this idea that kind of, uh, you know, just as... Um, just as the smoke monster is bringing this this almost sort of you know dry dusty smoke, uh, Jacob comes along and, and kind of you know washes the the sins of the man in black away. So uh, well done there, Nick, and your uh, your your son. Uh, Nick goes on to say, uh, in your Dave podcast, you mentioned that the number eight was Hurley's number. And to be fair, I think uh, not even I think I know that, that was uh, a listener had mentioned that uh, particular fact. So certainly. Uh, credit to them but anyhow nick goes on to say according to chinese superstition the number eight represents great luck and endless life so when it was disclosed that hurley was the number eight in season six it foreshadowed hurley's uh, ascendancy to island protector interesting to note that the unluckiest number per chinese superstition the number four was assigned to the hapless lock so some excellent numerology there from nick and then the last bit nick says this during your Two for the Road podcast, and here's a, a tidbit from Nick about the, the infamous DUIs. Uh, anyhow, he, Nick says, you were discussing the DUI incidents regarding Libby and Anna Lucia, which is to say Cynthia Watros and uh, Michelle Rodriguez, respectively. Uh, according, says Nick, according to a hotel manager I know, the two actresses were getting sloshed at a Waikiki hotel because they were told they were being killed off. Which uh, certainly would be my... <laughs> that would be... You know, be my reaction if I found out my, my time on a TV show was ending. Um, and Nick also wonders if um, if uh, the valet at uh, or the valet staff at the hotel were were told to um, to kind of tip the police off to any drunk drivers. So uh, interesting tidbit there from Nick. I will mention that uh, it seems across the board that Michelle Rodriguez always knew she was going to be in Lost in uh, just for one season. Uh, however, that said, just because it was her plan to be in it for one season, perhaps she figured, you know, final day of shooting season two, there's some, you know, gunfire and, the, and she goes out in the blaze of glory, not kind of two thirds of the way through the season uh, in a rather passive way, albeit in a tragic way. Her, her death and Libby's death certainly are tragic and, you know, emotional touchstones to the show. But, um, uh, Certainly, uh, there's the bit of uh, theorizing and feedback from Nick. And last thing I'll mention, of course, is uh, a quick little note from Bonnie. Uh, among some other things that she had to say, she, she said, uh, By the way, I've listened to a couple of Season 6 episodes uh, from the Lost Casts podcast and agree that it was a tight and well-thought-out show. Bonnie continues to say, I'm glad that they got you thinking about testing the waters yourself. And, uh, yeah, indeed, for anybody who... 
who doesn't know the story, and I'm sure I've mentioned it on the podcast before, uh, Lost Casts was uh, the first Lost podcast I listened to. Uh, I remember at the time them making kind of uh, references for those who were in the know about, you know, Ryan and Jen's podcast. And, you know, if you can imagine back to a time where, you know, Losties didn't just know right off the bat, you know, the, what, you know, who Ryan and Jen were. Um, and uh, these references to the transmission. And I'm saying, but the transmission from the, the radio? What, you know, what are they talking about? But, um, yeah, they're kind of, uh, I find myself thinking about that podcast, uh, especially lately with getting the Alcatraz podcast up and running, that, um, you know, it's, I'm, I thoroughly love doing uh, Looking Back at Lost, and I love the fact that it's, uh, it's my own little baby, and I kind of don't need to, uh, you know, I, I, I can perfect each podcast episode as much as I want, and it's kind of my own little kingdom, uh, but certainly the, uh, the fun that they had on Lost Casts, the rapport, the, uh, I mean, even just the approach, where it's just, we're going to sit and talk about some ideas, share some theories, share some listener feedback, you know, not kind of some heavily overproduced uh, type thing, type, you know, kind of not going for the radio show sound to it, but kind of just going for, you know, here's my slice of, of opinion, my slice of life, and, uh, you know, take it or leave it, um, you know, kind of coming from this personal point of view, uh, that, that, you know, Lost Casts has, has been an inspiration in that regard, and, um, you know, it's, uh, I certainly welcome anybody to check it out. Now, obviously, you know, they, they stopped podcasting with the final episode of Lost, so, you know, you'd be hearing old theories, um, but what great theories they were, especially in season two. They had started in season two, and, uh, and, uh, oh, I mean, all sorts of, um, I remember in particular, there's this one website that they referenced where it was so incredibly dense, I had trouble reading it. They didn't spend more than a couple minutes on it because it was so dense, but it was some relationship between actual real-life magnetic research and some guy named, I'm just going to make up a name here, but some name like, you know, Almar um, Hanayas, and they're saying, oh, was that some some uh, reference to Alvar Hanzo, or, you know, rather, is Alvar Hanzo a, a reference to it? And just, it, it, it would be fun to, to go back and listen to it because it was, you know, season two, which we are now concluding here on the podcast, you know, this, this episode of the podcast, it was so, it was such a, a wild and woolly time for Lost. I think as the seasons went on, it got leaner, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. But you just kind of reach a point where it's being boiled down to its el- kind of most elemental elemental uh, uh, actions. Whereas, you know, here we are, kind of full 23, 24 episode seasons and lots of kind of padding to pad that season out and little wonderful twists and turns. And uh, indeed, as we start to head to this episode, I, I mean, you think of season two could have been, hey, there's a guy in a hatch, right? Beginning of season one, you look down the hatch. Could have, Desmond could have said, Hey, uh, how's it going up there? Uh, yeah, I pushed this button. I didn't push it on September 22nd. What's up with that? And they could have said, September 22nd, that's when we crashed. Oh, the button caused us to crash. Uh, instead, they spend a whole season uh, leading to that very same scene where Desmond says, I didn't push the button and the, and the plane crashed. So the magic of drama, taking you know, taking the long route sometimes is the, the better choice. But... Let's now get into this episode properly, shall we? In flashbacks, 
Desmond and Kelvin are living together for three years in the hatch before Desmond finds out that Kelvin is secretly planning on escaping the island using Desmond's boat. Desmond violently confronts Inman about this, accidentally killing him in the process. After almost letting the countdown timer run down, Desmond starts drinking liquor and contemplates suicide. Before he shoots himself, however, he hears John Locke banging on the hatch door and turns on a light. Desmond then realizes there is still hope and decides not to kill himself. And on the present-day island, uh, when the boat with Saeed and Son and Jin reaches the other's camp, Saeed finds it to be deserted. Meanwhile, Jack, Sawyer, Kate, and Hurley realize that Michael has led them to a location other than the beach, ruining their former plan to meet up with Saeed. They hear whispers, and suddenly Sawyer, Kate, and Jack are incapacitated by electric darts. The hostages, bound and gagged, are brought to a dock, where it appears that the others are led by Henry Gale. Gale keeps his bargain with Michael, returning his son Walt to him and giving them an old fishing boat, with instructions to sail on a heading of 325 until they are rescued. Michael threatens Henry, telling them that he could tell the outside world of the island's location. Henry responds by telling him that it wouldn't matter, as they would not be able to find the island. He gives Michael a counter-threat, telling him that if he did tell people of the island's location, people would know what he did to get his son back. Michael reluctantly accepts, but asks who Henry and his people are, to which Henry responds, We're the good guys, Michael. Michael uses the boat to get him and Walt off the island. Hurley is then released and sent back to the other's uh, survivors with a message that they are to stay away from that part of the island. As Hurley is let go, the other captives are taken away. In an epilogue, the scene shifts to a cramped research station somewhere far from the island in a polar climate. Two men who speak Portuguese are playing chess and interrupted by an alert on a monitor displaying a message. One of the men makes a frantic phone call that wakes up Penelope Widmore in the middle of the night, telling her, I think we've found it. With that, let's now get into my thoughts about the episode. And I will mention quickly, perhaps this is poor editing on my part, um, the Wikipedia summary does not seem to make mention of everything else that happens in the hatch in this episode. So I'll just quickly remind you that uh, 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 Echo tries to dynamite the door uh, the blast door open. It does not work. Uh, Locke is convinced uh, to to not push the button. He ends up smashing the computer. Uh, there's then you know the the buildup of electromagnetism, and uh, Desmond goes to what I call the hatch beneath the hatch, puts the key in there, turns the key, the sky turns white, and uh, all we see of the hatch for the remaining bit of the episode is the quarantine door blown to the shore. So now, let's get to my thoughts about the episode. It is a tense, action-y start to this half of the episode. It's uh, Charlie unearthing the leftover dynamite. There's a quick quip about arts uh, and what happened, you know, with arts and dynamite. Then there's a cut to the hatch with Echo unloading the stuff. Uh, Inside the hatch, or, you know, when I say inside the hatch, I suppose I should say inside the computer room, uh, Locke is losing his confidence at the prospect of the door being dynamited down. However, uh, Desmond vaguely says that the door can take the hit, which leads us to a flashback. Uh, in it, Desmond and Kelvin, are uh, they fake a lockdown so that the blast door map can be painted in detergent. 
and uh, it, this opens the door for some uh, reminiscing on Desmond's part, which also acts as some exposition for uh, we, the audience. And you should have seen Rosinski do this. He had a photographic memory. I mean, this whole baby was his idea. Yeah, right, Rosinski. Rosinski figured out how to fake a lockdown. Rosinski created this great invisible map. More and more tales about your former partner, yet for some reason, you never want to tell me what bloody well happened to him. See that brown stain there? That's Radzinski. He put a shotgun in his mouth when I was asleep. And the bitch of it was, I only had 108 minutes to bury the poor bastard. It is such a shame that they killed off uh, Calvin. Uh, it would have been wonderful to see more of Clancy Brown. Uh, but... C'est la vie, c'est la vie. Uh, with that, uh, you know, obviously we've had some uh, some background there on Kelvin. We've had some background there on Rosinski, and uh, it's you know it's it's nice. It, it it's exposition with a purpose, and uh, it reminds us that these two, of course, are trapped in the hatch, and uh, it also forms a nice link when we finally meet Rosinski in season five. He's someone who, uh, you know, I mean. We, <laughs> We know how his story ends, but we, we don't know how it begins then to see him uh, with Dharma in the 1970s, especially when he's first designing the uh, designing the swan hatch. It's it's nice. It's nice. It, it also adds to the symmetry of the um, symmetry of the show. You know, kind of first season introduces the problems. Last season resolves them. Seasons two and five are uh, kind of about Dharma. Of course, it's in a reverse way. It's, you know, after the end of Dharma in the hatch and uh, seeing the first, what, three hatches, four hatches that are that are all left over and abandoned. Season five, we see Dharma at its uh, at its height. Then seasons three and four kind of, you know, uh, stitch stitch the difference. So anyhow, amidst all this, we also get some Kelvin background as well. He explains that he is here because because men followed my orders. But then, thank God, I joined the Dharma Initiative. Namaste, thank you, and good luck. <laughs> Please, Kelvin. Let me go out. Huh? Just once. So not only do we kind of get the... Uh... I was going to say the ramblings, but we kind of get the the dis- disillusionment uh, about the Dharma Initiative. And this kind of you know hint of, you know of the best optimism that it had, which of course is an optimism that we're going to see in season uh, five, as I just said, uh, but also, you know, kind of mirrors this, you know, here we are after the end of Dharma. Um, and of course, as well, in the course of the conversation, uh, we hear Desmond uh, expressing this interest to actually go outside. And uh, you know, that, of course, is something that will be carried later in the episode as Desmond is uh, watching Kelvin leave, sees that uh, Kelvin has a puncture in his bio suit and uh, etc., which we'll be talking about in a bit. Uh, at this point in the episode, though, the flashback wraps up, and uh, we're now in the hatch, but outside the the computer area. Uh, Charlie is sharing his doubts. You know, what if the computer is all a joke? Which, of course, is something that we've all asked. Echo quickly removes Charlie's belt. 
cheeky priest, uh, and then throws the belt at the magnetic wall, which perhaps is a reminder that our faith will be rewarded in this episode, that the threat is real, that things do not add up to this being some vague science experiment. And, uh, you know, as I said, faith shall be rewarded. With that, Echo ignites the dynamite, and the teaser act ends with Charlie running, a giant fireball, and an explosion. That's a good end to a teaser act, gang. After the act break, in flashback with uh, Kelvin missing, Desmond finds him in the secret hatch under the hatch. It's hatches and hatches. And while there, Kelvin gives some explanations. What was the incident? Electromagnetism. Geologically unique. The incident? (laughs) There was a leak. So now the charge builds up, and every time we push the button, it discharges it. Before it gets too big. Why make us do it? Push the button? If we, if we can just... Here's the real question, Desmondo. Do you have the courage to take your finger out of the dam and blow the whole thing up instead? Do you notice there how uh, Desmond starts to ask... The most important question of all, the one that the writers can't answer, the one that doesn't fit into the story, to the show at all, the, 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 the question that the writers don't have an answer to, which is, if this whole thing is so automated that all it takes is for somebody to type in some numbers and push a button, why doesn't the computer just do that itself? Uh, I think there is no answer. Welcome to fiction, people. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, even up perfectly. It doesn't match up perfectly. If you want to excuse it away that some, you know, hippy-dippy guy in the 70s, you know, took a toke and was like, hey, you know, since we have people here anyway, man, let's just have people, you know, doing this. And then we could have somebody else watch them and learn something about the people who are watching the other people, you know. If somebody has to do it, then let's, you know, turn it to science, man. But um, it, uh, you know, luckily... Luckily, uh, you know, the function of exposition is to be explaining things to us. Luckily, uh, 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 Kelvin is down there to kind of, you know, share this secret information at just the right time now that he's drunk. And, um, you know, not say too much because there's this, you know, it's like, hey, before you start asking too many practical questions there, Desmond, do you have the guts to not push the button? Because that's what we're coming around to at the end of this episode, guys. So don't, don't, you know. Don't strive too far off it. Um, you know, it's you can. It's not. It's not that you can see the hand of the writer here. You can just see the edges of the paper where they're saying we're not gonna. We're gonna. We're gonna stay on on target here. Anyhow, uh, after this uh, flashback, we cut to a perfectly fine uh, John Locke and Desmond, who are quite fine after that dynamite explosion. Uh, Locke reflects on his lack of faith. He recounts season one's drive to find the hatch, Boone's death, Locke banging on the hatch, and uh, the feelings of uh, or the feeling of being saved by the the hatch light that went on. Locke dismisses this, saying it was likely Desmond was just going to the bathroom. Desmond, of course, is stunned and walks away because he's had a revelation. A revelation that he's going to save until later because it's TV and, you know, we're probably about 15 minutes in. And, you know, why spoil spoil all the good stuff now? With that, we cut to a sweaty Saeed uh, kind of sneaking his way into the secret other's camp by the big rocks. Uh, it's deserted. 
and something, of course, does not feel right. There's a great shot of him heading toward the brand new hatch. Giacchino music is swirling to tell us that it's all nothing. It's concrete and stone. And uh, just in time, the show wisely cuts back to Jack, Kate, Michael, Hurley, and Sawyer, those who have been set up by all of this, right? It was all a setup, and it's this, it's this great moment where, you know, you don't need dialogue for Saeed to go, but what about our friends or something like that? It's just you as the audience go, oh, my goodness, this was all fake. And then you cut to the people who are now going to pay the price for that. It's, it's nice. Anyhow, with that, Jack and company, they find the pneumatic tube from the Pearl, all those dumped observation notebooks. Uh, it's all proof that the quote-unquote fake button pushing is actually an experiment for the real Pearl experiment uh, to watch. Um, we, of course, might be reminded at this point that there was the camera in the Pearl watching the Pearl people watching people. Um, so there you go. Uh, there's another bit of foreshadowing, or you know, that in and of itself is another bit of foreshadowing that we're headed to finding out how real that button is. Uh, Kate flips through one of the journals, uh, makes reference to a journal entry watching SR, that of course is going to be, or was and will be, Stuart Radzinski of, uh, you know, blew his brains out with a gun, uh, Radzinski. Uh, there's also a scene where I believe it's Locke finds, uh, not Locke, Sawyer finds Locke's hand-drawn map. And I think the only reason he does that is to just really hammer home, you know, this is the other end of that tube. Um, again, just to really hammer home this idea that it is, you know, that the pearl was the fake, ex fake experiment, not the, uh, not the swan. Uh, Jack at that point starts to, you know, he notices, um, Saeed's smoke. He starts to suspect that things are looking like a trap just in time for whispers, electric stunner darts, and the complete capture by the others. Uh, at this high point of tension, you know, our bestest of heroes have now been captured, we cut to Desmond and Locke, sitting in the hatch, talking. Locke shares his doubting theory of the pearl, and Desmond offers a different point of view, one of faith, Christian faith perhaps, and one of purpose. Again, a reminder, one of my kind of uh, larger uh, theories, I think, for the course of this podcast not the episode but the you know kind of looking back at all these episodes one of my larger theories is desmond as a christ figure uh we're going to see some more of that in a bit uh i think that uh you know when we get to season three the the bearded naked uh, uh desmond i think there's uh there actually isn't there a, it's been forever since i've seen uh the beginning of season three but it doesn't really make some sort of reference to him as him as christ um and then certainly, just to finish the thought, this tangential thought for a moment, uh, at the end, you know, towards the end of the series, when we have Desmond literally going back between, you know, it's not just the Flash Sideways, let's remember, the Flash Sideways are the afterlife. Uh, it's just not, you know, not quite heaven yet or that sort of thing. So, you know, Desmond literally is, when he's travel traveling from uh, this world to the afterlife, he is, you know, he's literally dying and resurrecting and dying and resurrecting uh why why so that he can save all of us in that in that church so again not trying to push i'm not trying to push the christian view on uh those who who don't you know don't uh 
go for Christianity. But uh, I think that nonetheless, when we, when we look at the Bible's literature, the Bible's having a, uh, a literary effect on on fiction. Uh, I think that you know we we see that there very clearly with Desmond. Anyhow, back to this episode, shall we? A little bit less, uh, a little bit less God and whatnot. Uh, we cut to a flashback with Desmond and Kelvin now in the hatch for three years. Uh, by the way, did not Christ labor for three years before uh, <laughs> before before the big stuff that gets uh, you know studied in the New Testament? Uh, anyhow, it's uh, commented that Desmond shaves every day. Uh, perhaps the Christ-like beard comes later. Anyhow, uh, we uh, we see Kelvin uh, starting to leave. Desmond notices that there's a rip in the bio suit, and we see Kelvin uh, leave all suited up, uh, of course, with that rip. And Desmond sneaks out shortly after him with just a shirt over his mouth. Kelvin removes the breather mask, and Desmond uh, continues to pursue him. Uh, the scene then moves just to some great volcanic layers by the water. I'm all but sure that it's a new location. It just looks fantastic. Uh, Desmond discovers that his boat, let's not forget it's the Elizabeth, uh, is docked, and then he discovers that he has been discovered. Well, gosh, I didn't think you had the stones to come after me. I was a spook for 10 years, Des. I know when I'm being followed. What are you doing with my boat? I'm fixing it. You were leaving? Well, I mean, not yet. She's still about a week away. You wrecked it pretty good, Des. So what do you think? Want to come with me? Come where? What about the button? Screw the button, man. Who knows if it's even real? That's not what you say when you were going on and on about dams and electromagnetics and, and failsafe! Well, I was drunk. <laughs> Why did you lie to me? I lied to you because I needed a sucker to save the world after I left. You crazy, you bastard! Oh, come on. You stole my life! What else did you lie to me about? Why else? Tell me! How could you do this to me? Great scene of uh, kind of the revelation that Desmond has been a bit of a, you know, has been used. Uh, it, of course, ends with Kelvin rather quickly being killed. Uh, maybe he's a bit you know, soft on his feet there. Uh, then at that point, uh, Desmond realizes that there's a button to go back and be pushed and races back to find... Hopefully he's saved things just in time. I'm sure that's what he's thinking. Uh, with that, we cut back to Desmond, uh, back you know in, in the present day uh, course of the show, looking at the Pearl printouts, and we get an answer to a question first asked two years ago. Specifically, why did the plane crash? Why did you come here? What? The island. When did you come here? How long ago? 60, 65 days. What the date? What was the date? September 22nd. It was September 22nd. I think I crashed your plane. 
pay off answers to our questions. As I rewatched this, the hair was up on my arms. It's just a just a fantastic. There we go. Now we know why the plane crashed. We can understand that, you know, kind of in uh, in, in easily uh, explainable terms. A bit far fetched, perhaps. You know, if you go down to your physics professor or whatever, there might be some some claims otherwise. But just giant magnetic ball thing, you know, messes up the plane. Uh, you know, as an, an electromagnetic pulse uh, would would do. And there you go. Why the plane crashed. There's a quick commercial break, and then uh, we return to the dirty, swarthy others on the beat-up dock. Um, And uh, our heroes are, uh, of course, surrounded, bagged, gagged, bound, and stuck. Uh, There's a great shot of Jack kind of mentally cursing Michael, and then another grand reveal. Hello again. Of course, is Henry Gale, uh, who assumes this kind of uh, standing of he is the leader. Where's your beard? I think they know. I think we as the audience are still slightly stunned, but certainly with that dialogue, it's clear he's the guy. All right, let's take care of business, shall we? Some fabulous uh, Giacchino music there as well. Just, uh, yeah. <laughs> I said, I'm, I don't need to speak here. We'll just let Giacchino speak here for a bit. Um, it's interesting too, you know, if Desmond is Christ, then, uh, you know, we have this reveal here of, of Ben almost as an antichrist of sorts. Uh, you know, the villain with his back to the camera. He's, uh, you know, zipping across water, you know, walking across water, if you like, albeit on a boat. So perhaps that's a stretch, but certainly traversing across water. Um, If you say that there's no payoffs in Lost, I mean, how about three and a half in a row? What crashed the plane that the button almost certainly needs to be pushed? You know, we'll obviously find out for sure at the end of the episode, but as close confirmation as you can get at this point. Third, that Ben is the guy in charge. And then your half, the others really don't live like animals in huts. Uh, safe assumption, been a safe assumption for a while, but just another kind of, you know, uh, check in that box. Um, ben, of course, now wants to even up with Michael. Uh, there's this height of tension. So we cut to Charlie with a bloody ear and unable to hear. They use some old tricks, but, you know, but good ones. Uh, the ringing sound, dampened audio for, for us, the viewers and listeners. Uh, in the dampened sound, the counter starts to beep, and we return to the computer room. There's lots of dialogue that kind of spells it all out. You know, system failure on September 22nd, 2004, etc. Uh, there's Locke unwilling to accept fact or faith. Uh, he breaks the computer button and the whole computer itself. Uh, the, he, you know throws free this bane of his existence all season. Um, Desmond, at that point, undoes the lockdown, grabs his copy of Our Mutual Friend in order to, quote, help everyone out, and flashback. Desmond is fingering a handgun, he's drinking, and he's about to read Our Mutual Friend, the self-professed last book he'll ever read. So clearly, kind of thoughts of suicide on his mind, thoughts of following the Rosinski model. 
he opens uh, the book that uh, Penny asked him if he ever read in prison when they, he was doing the Tour de Stade, hint, hint. Uh, luckily, it didn't have a GPS phone or something like that in it, uh, a la the theory of the mystery package in the movie Cast Away. Uh, Suicidal Desmond opens the book to find a note, written, of course, by his Penny. Dearest Des, I am writing this letter to you as you leave for prison, and I've hidden it in the one place you would turn to in a moment of great desperation. I know you go away with the weight of what happened on your shoulders, and I know the only person who can ever take it off is you. Please don't give up, Des. Because all we really need to survive is one person who truly loves us. And you have her. I will wait for you always. I love you. Pen. There's the show in a nutshell. People connecting with people. What follows seems to echo the breakdown scene of Citizen Kane, perhaps. Desmond demolishing the library, smashing, yelling despondent, broken. At his lowest, thinking the whole world is gone, he hears something to save him. Who's on the other end of the hatch? Locke, smashing, yelling, despondent, broken. At his lowest moment, thinking that all hope is gone, he's given something to save him. That is, of course, the light turning on from inside the hatch. There's the show in a nutshell, too. People helping people. Strangers sharing kindness, people coming together, casting aside individuality for a sense of community and purpose. Lofty as the revelation is, we only have a commercial break to mull it over. After the act break, the whole darn hatch is about to explode. Dialogue emotion, then action emotion. I suppose that's TV in a nutshell. Desmond retrieves the key, presumably because it's the other alternative to pushing the button, like Kelvin said 15 minutes ago. This, of course, is a... Uh, speaking of nutshells, this is another example of Chekhov's gun in a nutshell. Uh, that's something that I've mentioned before. The uh, writer Antonin Chekhov originated the term, uh, which, of course, refers to the idea that uh, in a drama, if you're going to say that there's a gun hanging over the mantelpiece uh, in the first act, you had better fire it uh, by the final act, otherwise don't mention it. Uh for better or for worse, that's you know precisely the uh, precisely part of the function of the scene of uh, Kelvin drunk in the hatch beneath the hatch. It's uh, not only some exposition to address uh, things that have already gone on, but it's to plant that seed so that uh, well, so that essentially the episode hasn't out. The whole big kind of you know solution to uh, you know not pushing the button is this key uh, business and. Um, it's, you know, it's, uh, it would have been nice if the key was somehow introduced way ahead of time, but then I think we would have seen it coming. So it's kind of a catch-22 if we sit and go, oh, you know, that's the key from 20 episodes ago, you know, then are we just sitting at home each week saying, what are they going to do with the key? Oh, this is dumb. They just put the key in so it's something I could use at the end. Whereas I think perhaps things are going so fast that we don't really... Uh, you know, we kind of don't question the fact that it's convenient that they introduced the key so recently. Anyhow, uh, with uh, with Desmond heading towards that hatch under the hatch, Giacchino seems to use the counter beep 
as a musical harmony. And I'll play the clip in a moment. When I say the counter beep, I mean that, you know, that kind of countdown beep. Uh, and uh, take a listen here as it kind of both uh, in, in the, the beep, uh, I think, interacts with the music, not just with its tonality, but uh, also with its rhythm. Take a listen. It's a rather fast clip, I admit, but I kind of feel that there's this, um, oh, kind of the, the pulsing of that uh, of that timer, I think, is kind of picked up by the music. Uh, I think, too, there's um, a bit of interplay between the, between the uh, you know, kind of the, the chords that he's using. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of quickly approaching a point where I don't have the proper musical language to, uh, you know, to describe it. But I think that, I think he's using the note of the... Uh, of that beep to kind of play with his own music. Um, then, on the way down, Desmond makes uh, his clearest hint that he is a Christ-like character. Three days before you came down here, before we met, I heard a banging on the hatch door, shouting. But it was you, John, wasn't it? You say there isn't any purpose. There's no such thing as fate. But you saved my life, brother, so that I could save yours. No, 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 none of this is real. Nothing is going to happen. We're going to be okay. I've got to go, and you've got to get as far away from here as possible. Go where? Stop! I'm going to blow the dam, John. I'm sorry for what happened that made you stop believing. But it's all real. And now I've got to go and make it all go away. I mean, he's talking about uh, faith. He's talking about, uh, you know, being here for a purpose. Uh, he certainly, at the end of the clip, is uh, it's heavily suggested that he's sacrificing himself uh, for, quote-unquote, us, for the castaways. Uh, I, I think, too, there's this idea of, well, he says, you saved my life so that I could save yours. And, uh, you know, here he is, prepared to, prepared to die uh, for... Of all people, of you know, it's John Locke, John the Baptist? Question mark. Um, the you know John the Baptist who didn't, uh, you know, who wasn't the prophet, but rather foretold his coming. Just as John Locke has ended up not being uh, the savior, the answer, the the guy that we saw in Walk About who was going to protect us all. He hasn't ended up being that, but he has. Uh, you know, foretold of his coming and that he was the one that, uh, you know, he was the driving force to get to the hatch, to open the hatch that first had an interaction with Desmond in terms of banging on the uh, the hatch door. And uh, so there you go. Perhaps, as I said, the best, uh, the best argument thus far that Desmond is a Christ-like character. Uh, and then right after that clip, of course, the end comes. At this point, chaos unfolds, the hatch is falling apart, all the metal items are being pulled and torn, including that washer and dryer that uh, there was so much speculation about, thank you very much. At one point, too, Echo and Locke face one another, Locke going from a strong man to looking like a little boy, amazed that falling off your bike can actually hurt, that the stories were true. Indeed, he's almost beyond being broken. He's uh, humbled by the mighty forces of faith. 
and I suppose magnetism. With that, we cut to Desmond, ready to hint, hint, sacrifice himself. He crosses himself, having given up all earthly desires in order to do the right thing. All we really need to survive is one person who truly loves us. And you have her. I will wait for you. Always. I love you. I love you, Penny. As the sky turns white and purple, there's a montage across the island. Ben, who rather fittingly stares into the light, the others, Jack and company, Bernard, Claire, the baby, Saeed, Sun, and Jin. It's largely soundless. It's largely unseen with washed out white. It's lost at its best. No explanation, no catering to the front row, no exposition to say, someone must have blah blah blah. It's surreal, powerful, and bought and paid for after two seasons. Then there's a bit of an exclamation point. The quarantine door, the very first hatch, the piece of metal Boone dropped a flashlight on, lands on the beach. The hatch is dead. The act ends. In a certain sense, it's not just the end of an act, but it's also the end of the season at that point. The next ten minutes of the show are after-effects of the season. What the camp does next, what Michael does next, what Ben does next. It's also a sort of epilogue to season two, and a prologue to season three, Jack and Company Captured, and The Rise of the Others. With Charlie returning to the beach, uh, Locke and Echo gone, we cut to the dock, labeled Paula Ferry in the widescreen shot, just as mentioned in the Pearl video. Ben clearly isn't happy with the deal, but he allows it, since we learn the others live up to their words. Mention, too, is made of Walt's specialness, but Ben says he supposes this, him returning to his father, is best. Now, why is that? I think the answer is, if only Ben's father loved him this much. It's a steel-sharp moment on first viewing, but on this, you know, second viewing, third viewing, fifth viewing, I just can't help but think of Ben's drunken, loveless, abusive father and feel a bit of sympathy for old Ben, and you know, see the sympathy that he's uh, that he's showing to Michael as well. Michael is given the key to get out, drive on heading 325, and you're fine. Now, a couple of things about that heading quickly. First of all, it uh, when I first heard that, uh, I had this theory of how that could work. If you imagine that there are two magnetic fields on the island, uh, which I don't know necessarily to be the case, but if you imagine two magnetic fields, and you could you could uh, demonstrate them by if you make fists and put your hands together, if you imagine that each fist kind of is its own magnetic field, um, obviously it's difficult to know which way you're going because if you go uh, east long enough, say, on your left hand to your right, well, at a certain point you cross that line and now you're west again. Um, I would imagine that heading 325 if you, again, make those fists with your hands and put them together, I imagine heading 325 being uh, the line where your two hands meet, which is to say, if you stay on that line, you're equally, you know, you're you're pulled equally, your compass is pulled equally uh, by the two magnetic fields, meaning that you're able to uh, escape them both equally, you're able to get a true reading. 
Also mentioned too that heading 325 on, on any compass is close enough to north by northwest, uh, which of course is the line from Hamlet that refers to being only slightly mad. Is this a metaphor for the show? I mean, there's all these crazy things for the show, but at the end of the day, it's kind of really only slightly mad. It's family squabbles. It's, uh, you know, it, it's a fight between brothers. That's the battle between good and evil and black and white. It's a fight between brothers. So uh, as crazy as the show, the show seems, it is, of course, only north by northwest. But anyhow, before Michael leaves, he asks something that is on our mind. My friends... I was promised you wouldn't hurt them. Deal's a deal. Who are you people? We're the good guys, Michael. I don't know if we always live in an age of zealotry, but I think that certainly in our world now, there's there's those who are who are you know, and akin to polarizing views and, uh, and partial to them. And I think that, you know, with an eye towards zealotry and singular points of view, it's an interesting comment. Um, particularly so, you know, here we are, what, this is 2006 uh, when this episode is airing. Uh, you know, if you think back to some international things, whether it's the Iraq war, the war on terror, et cetera, which, which I continue to believe uh, vaguely informs kind of the, 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 well, not the, not the backbone of the show, but the, uh, oh, the ligaments of the show, the cartilage, the kind of bits and pieces that make the most important things connect. Um, I think that the show can only be informed by its time. And, uh, you know, this kind of notion of, you know, so oftentimes we're fighting, bad guys who are the good guys for their own story and in their story where the bad guys uh etc um i mean certainly at the end of the day ben remains to be a villain uh perhaps sympathetic but it remains to be a villain and same thing with uh, the others in general but anyhow food for food for thought they of course don't linger long Michael and Walter reunited, and it's a it's a heartfelt little moment, uh, you know, them finally reaching this goal. But of course, it's only a moment as we realize that our main characters are in deep trouble. Hurley at that point is brought up, and we think, oh no, is he going to be executed? What will happen? But uh, of course, he's being sent back to camp to deliver the message to stay away, and that Jack, Kate, and Sawyer will never return. Hurley is unsure if, of what to do. He's not quite yet the leader that he'll become. Jack gives him a nod that it's okay. And there's just these wonderful series of shots of Hurley leaving, Michael and Walt leaving, the steely-eyed Jack giving a son-of-a-gun stare to Michael as he leaves. It's well-deserved, Jack, well done. That, of course, that kind of hard look, uh, it doesn't last long. It turns to fearful looks between Jack, Kate, and Sawyer as they get hooded and the act ends. Season two, at least on the uh, on the island, concludes with a silent beach. Charlie sitting by Claire. Then we have our exposition that uh, the show uh, did without during the, the hatch explosion. Claire describing the violet sky. Charlie unable to give answers. At least they're together, right? It's people connecting with people. They share a kiss, and it's well-deserved. Very well-deserved. It's just this calm 
quiet moment. And in that moment, I couldn't remember how the season ended for a moment. It's the beach. It's our beach. Dark, lit only by flame, the screen mostly in black, the music soft, sound effects and dialogue gone. But of course, that's no way for Lost to end. Where's our giant mind screw to chew over all summer? We find ourselves in some sort of snowy base camp. And I think a lot of us on first viewing uh, initially thought that it was some kind of commercial. These new characters speak in mundane Portuguese and then notice something on the screen. We see that there's been an electric anomaly detected. And the Jaquino music starts to tell us that we're still in Lost. They argue about making the call. But to who? Hello. Miss Whitmore. Yes. It's us. We see the same picture of Desmond and Penny. I think we found it. We see that it's Penny on the other end of the phone, and that she's been waiting and looking all this time. This is a fabulous, fabulous ending. Uh, Better, absolutely better, on repeat viewing. Uh, I found myself, you know, having quite a good cry at the end of it, despite, you know, as soon as it cut to the snowy scene, I then remembered uh, how it ended. And just, you know, what a what a powerful ending. And all the better once you know these characters, once you know their love even better, uh, you know, from this vantage point after the end of the series, uh, knowing that they will be reunited, knowing that they will live happily ever after, it's uh, it's just such a such a fantastic ending, so incredibly powerful. Uh, the statement, uh, you know, of of you know, so plain but so uh, so touching uh, in terms of you know being a statement of uh, love and hope and uh, and faith across you know time and land and sea, and uh, absolutely an affirmation of the very best things of Lost at. Uh, at this, the end of the second season. Of course, though, the episode is over. The podcast is not. Let's take a look at Lostpedia to see what bits and pieces uh, it has for us. Uh, it has some good tidbits here as well. It says, uh, before season five, this is the only episode that shows a flash of the outside world in current time. Not a flashback or flash forward, and not interacting with someone uh already on the island, such as Desmond calling Penelope in the constant. Another bit of trivia from Lostpedia is that, uh, let's see, according to uh, a May 2006 official Lost podcast, the crew started writing Live Together, Die Alone, both parts, of course, uh, four weeks prior to its airing. Uh, I feel like perhaps I shared that uh, that tidbit uh, on the previous episode, and if I did, I, I apologize, but... Anyhow, they go on to say the episode was shot in 17 days with two simultaneous crews, and the final scene with Penny was shot just five days before airing. The reason the shot featuring Penelope was shot uh, that close before the airing uh, was to replace the original season's ending, uh, which featured a researcher bursting into a board meeting, dot matrix printout in hand, to share information to Charles Widmore that they found it. And 
that would have fit, right? We look ahead to the freighter people. Um, that certainly would have fit. But my goodness, what a what a fantastic ending! Why why advance your villain and villainous plots when you could advance love and and connection and and, and that sort of thing? Uh, another bit here from uh, Lostpedia. During the electromagnetic, earth, electromagnetic earthquake, when Locke refuses to push the button, Echo's metal necklace stays flat on his chest, uh, despite having been attracted uh, attracted to the concrete wall upon entering the station. So, a little continuity error there. Uh, also, when Desmond looks through his letters, you can see a return address on them. In the United Kingdom, you don't include a return address, and if you do, it goes on the reverse of the envelope. So I suppose a, a male continuity error there. Uh, last bit from Lostpedia here. As Charlie and Echo prepare to use the dynamite on the blast doors in the Swan Station, Desmond says to Locke that it would take an atom bomb to get through the doors. Later in Season 5, when the survivors are living in 1977, they detonate a hydrogen bomb at the Swan Station construction site, releasing the energy that would crash their plane. So a lovely bit of irony there. And uh, one more bit of trivia, this one from Wikipedia. Uh, the uh, computer screen seen there, the, the Arctic, uh, reads 741-8880, electromagnetic anomaly detected. And the bit of trivia is that that number is the product of 48, 15, 16, 23, and 42. So with that, now the episode is truly over. Uh, let's look ahead to next week. Next week will be a special episode. I'm going to be reviewing season two and previewing season three. Kind of, uh, as I said at the top of the podcast, an opportunity to kind of step back, take a take a view of the landscape uh, as a whole, the season as a whole, and uh, to look ahead to where we are going. Some of it, of course, that perilous path to see, you know, in season three with too many other centric storylines and. Nikki and Paolo and the story of Jack's stupid tattoo. So all of that uh, to look forward to next week. And a reminder, too, that that episode will be the final Monday episode of the podcast. The Friday immediately after that, the first Friday in February, uh, will be when I'm starting season three. And the podcast will be uh, released on Fridays at that point. So with that in mind, a reminder that uh, new episodes launch to the website, iTunes, and the Lost Podcasting Network on the new day, whether it's Monday next week or uh, the following Friday and subsequent Fridays from there. You can check out some of my other projects, whether it's the Alcatraz Podcast by phgeek.com, that's at uh, alcatraz.podbean.com, or by searching uh, iTunes for Alcatraz Podcast by phgeek.com. There's also a phgeek podcast that we do at phgeek.podbean.com. And uh, by searching iTunes for PHGeek, uh, I blog a bit at phgeek.com. That's always great fun, and we're always looking for more contributors. Uh, if you'd like to share feedback about this podcast, my beloved Looking Back at Lost, my first love in the world of podcasting, uh, there's a bunch of ways you can do it. You can call the voice message line at 732-707-1815. You can say hello to me on Twitter, where I'm Looking Back Lost. You can send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. You can visit the webpage and leave a comment there, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. And of course, you can find the show on iTunes where reviews are always appreciated. So, as we uh, almost reach an hour on this uh, second hour of uh, Live Together, Die Alone, thank you one and all for listening. Thank you for having spent uh, the first two seasons of Lost with me. We're... Uh, 
I feel like we're, we're we're chugging along here at a good pace. Before we know it, it'll be uh, oh those those low points of season three, then heading towards the light, and there'll be the the season three finale with uh, the, just the, the shocking flash forward, uh, one of the great zingers into season four, the movement of the island, season five, the uh, return of my beloved Dharma, and uh, season six to wrap it up. So. We certainly are chugging along, and uh, I look forward to joining you all again next week as we step back and take a take a peek at, or take a review of Season 2 and look ahead to Season 3. And uh, thank you very much for listening once again, and I will talk to you all next week. Take care, and bye-bye.